Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Welcome to our latest episode. I like interesting people. They make me feel alive. They make me realize that in spite of what we see in the news, there are some really cool things going on out there. But when I started to put this podcast together, I started thinking, what is it that makes a person interesting? Well, that made me go back and think about the people I've met over the last year or so that I thought were interesting. And what that made me do was consider what they had in common that made them interesting people. And here's what I came up with. First of all, they typically do things I don't do. In fact, a lot of them do things I didn't even know you could do. For example, Chris Haas is a sound ecologist in northern Nevada. She records soundscapes of wilderness areas and then uses the information contained in them to develop a deeper understanding of the natural environment where she did the recording. Second, every one of them knows things I don't know, and they're willing to share those things with me. I had a conversation on a plane a couple of weeks ago with a pediatric vascular surgeon. This woman does open-heart surgery on babies that haven't been born yet. They're still inside their moms. I mean, I bowed down before people like that. But she was mystified and more than a little terrified of my ability to stand in front of a large room of people and talk and actually enjoy it. The third thing is that interesting people do what they do because of a flaming passion inside. Yeah, it earns them a paycheck, but frankly, they do it for the love, and they do it because it's bigger than they are and needs to be done. When I'm around these people, I feel empowered. I mean, consider this. I'm on the board of an organization here in Vermont called ROC. It's R-O-C. It stands for Refugee Outreach Club. ROC provides language training to recently arrived refugees, and it also collects coats and other cold-weather clothing for people so they can handle Vermont winters. Recently, the founder decided to go in a slightly different direction. She and another board member, who happens to be a dentist, have begun to make regular trips to West Africa to deliver free dental care to people in remote villages who otherwise wouldn't have it. The founder negotiated with a major telecom equipment provider to get free use of devices that would allow them to communicate between Africa and the U.S. free of charge. Did I mention that the founder is a 17-year-old high school student? I mean, I know what I was doing when I was 17, and I sure wasn't doing that. She inspires me. So this episode is sort of a celebration of interesting people who have done game-changing things, people that most of us don't know much about. In fact, a lot of these people I will obviously, as you'll soon see, have never met. I just am in awe of them. So let's start with Ada Lovelace. Ada was the daughter of the poet Lord Byron. This guy wrote amazing poetry. He wrote passages like this. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. That is paralyzingly beautiful. But his daughter Ada worked on Charles Babbage's difference engine back in the early 1800s, during which she created the concept of looping, which is still used today in modern programming. Next on our list is Grace Hopper, that would be Rear Admiral Grace Hopper to you and me. Admiral Hopper made it her life's work in the Navy to destroy resistance to change. She had a clock in her office that ran backwards, the symbol of her commitment to doing things just a bit differently than the rest of us. She worked on the UNIVAC-1 and created the world's first compiler. 
At one point while working on Univac, she found a moth flying around inside the machine, causing all kinds of problems. She dubbed it the first computer bug. She also invented the Flowmatic programming language, which became COBOL. Let's shift gears now and talk about Betty Jean Jennings Bardick, Kathleen McNulty, Maukli Antonelli, Ruth Lichterman Teitelbaum, Francis Bylas Spence, Marlon Westkoff Meltzer, and Francis Snyder Holberton. We know all these people, right? I didn't think so. These are the seven women of ENIAC, the women who ran the 30-ton electrical, numerical, integrator, and computer, a titanic device that occupied 1,500 square feet of space and had 18,000 vacuum tubes, 70,000 resistors, 10,000 capacitors, and 5 million solder joints. It was used during World War II to calculate missile trajectories and for nuclear research. It was the first easily programmable computer. Next on our list is the German actress Hedy Lamarr. Hedy Lamarr was a beautiful woman who starred in quite a few films back in the late 30s and early 40s. But she was so much more than a pretty face, and by the way, she was a beautiful face. Together with composer George Anthile, she invented a mouthful of technology called Frequency Hopping Spread Spectrum, the basis for many modern cellular telephone networks as well as Wi-Fi. This list goes on for a long time, and it's pretty impressive. Elizabeth Feinler was the director of the Network Information Systems Center at Stanford Research Institute. She initially wanted to study biochemistry and, in fact, wrote a couple of mesmerizing works called The Handbook of Psychopharmacology and The Chemical Process Economics Handbook. We all have those on our shelves, I know. Feinler was wooed away from her pursuits by none other than Doug Engelbart, who, among other things, invented the computer mouse while working at the Stanford Research Institute. Anyway, Feinler's team ran the ARPANET, which was the precursor to the Internet. She's still at it, by the way. Edith Clark was the first woman to earn a master's degree at MIT in electrical engineering. She invented the Clark Calculator, which solved some of the telecom industry's most vexing transmission problems and was a major contributor to telecom science. Katherine Johnson was a NASA computer scientist, one of the many human computers, all women of color, who calculated rocket trajectories during the early launch history of the organization. She was featured in the film Hidden Figures. Sister Mary Kenneth Keller entered the Catholic Sisterhood in 1932 and took her vows in 1940. But that didn't stop her from earning a PhD. Her thesis was called Inductive Inference on Computer-Generated Patterns. She was the first woman to earn a computer science degree and was one of the three developers of the basic programming language. Next, let me introduce you to Carol Shaw, who was one of the first video game designers. She created 3D tic-tac-toe and other games for Atari back in the 1970s. Then we have Susan Wojcicki, who joined Google in its second year of operation. She had huge influence over the search interface and created the first Doodle. Today, she runs YouTube. You've probably never heard of Susan Kerr, but if you're a Mac user, you're more familiar with her than you realize. She joined Apple in the early 80s. She designed the lasso tool, the grabber, and the paint bucket, the visual language for Apple's point-and-click computing interface, the Chicago, Monaco, and Geneva fonts, the four-leaf clover symbol on the command key, and the smiling computer that welcomes users when they first turn on their Macs. And finally, we have Sheryl Sandberg. Cheryl is the chief operating officer of Facebook, and that was after she completed a successful career at Google. 
She's also a strong supporter of gender equality in the workplace. In her book, Lean In, she says, We stand on the shoulders of the women who came before us, women who had to fight for the rights that we now take for granted. Wow. So many interesting people. But you know, just for fun, I'm going to extend the list just a little bit. Let's talk about Brian May. Brian holds a doctorate degree in astrophysics. He also happens to be a guitarist and composer with the iconic rock group Queen. Sterling Morris has a Ph.D. in medieval studies. He's one of the founders of the Velvet Underground. And Robert Leonard, he founded Shanana, and he has a Ph.D. in linguistics. I want to end with a couple of other examples. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, on average, there are 79 people who get organ transplants every day in the United States, while 22 people wait for transplants and die. On any given day, about 400 children are on the waiting list for new organs, and about 50 of them die while they wait because of a lack of available, donated organs. Given the number of people in this country, there is no excuse or explanation for that, none whatsoever. Now, for years, since the beginning of the 20th century, really, people have tried to develop artificial hearts that would supply oxygenated blood to the body of a patient in heart failure until a transplantable heart becomes available. In the early 20th century, two people, a prominent biologist and an engineering school dropout, created the first perfusion device designed to pump blood through the body of a patient whose heart had failed. The biologist, Alexis Carroll, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1912 for his pioneering work in vascular suturing techniques. The engineering school dropout also became famous, but not for his work in medicine. In 1927, he made the first nonstop flight across the Atlantic Ocean. His name was Charles Lindbergh. I close with the story of Paul Winchell, a well-known Hollywood character in the 1950s. He was best known as a ventriloquist who, with his puppet Jerry Mahoney, appeared on a lot of children's television shows. But he was also a very curious individual who cultivated an interesting group of friends, among them Dr. Henry Heimlich. Yes, it's that Heimlich. When Winchell shared one of his ideas with Heimlich, he encouraged him to pursue it. And so it was that in the early 1960s, he became the first person to build and patent a working, implantable, artificial heart. This is one hell of a world. The more I learn about it, the more I think that we might just survive ourselves. I'm Steve Shepard, always on the lookout for interesting stories about this little blue ball we call home. For The Natural Curiosity Project, thank you for listening. The mission of The Natural Curiosity Project is to tell the stories of amazing moments in scientific discovery and accomplishment. If there's a story you'd like to hear, or would like to suggest a story, or just want to chat about the amazing world of science, please send a message to steve at shepardcom.com. That's steve at s-h-e-p-a-r-d-c-o-m-m dot com.